Book 3, Chapter 7 of The Life of John Ruskin by W. G. Collingwood. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Life of John Ruskin by W. G. Collingwood. Book 3, Hermit and Heretic, 1860-1870. Chapter 7, Time and Tide. 1867. Recording by Graham Arrowsmith. The series of letters published as Time and Tide by Weir and Tyne were addressed to Thomas Dixon, a working cork cutter of Sunderland, whose portrait by Professor Legros is familiar to visitors at the South Kensington Museum. He was one of those thoughtful, self-educated working men in whom, as a class, Ruskin had been taking a deep interest for the past twelve years an interest which had purchased him a practical insight into their various capacities and aims, and the right to speak without fear or favour. At this time there was an agitation for parliamentary reform, and the better representation of the working classes, and it was on this topic that the letters were begun, though the writer went on to criticise the various social ideals then popular and to propose his own. He had already done something of the sort in Unto This Last, but time and tide is much more complete and the result of seven years further thought and experience his fors clavigera is a continuation of these letters but written at a time when other work and ill health broke in upon his strength time and tide is not only the statement of his social scheme as he saw it in his central period but written as these letters were at a stroke so to speak condensed in exposition and simple in language they deserve the most careful reading by the student of Ruskin. Before this work was ended, Carlyle had come back from Menton to Chelsea and was begging his friend, in the warmest terms, to come and see him. Shortly afterward, a passage which Ruskin would not retract gave offence to Carlyle. But the difference was healed, and later years reveal the sage of Chelsea as kindly and affectionate as ever. This friendship between the two greatest writers of their age between two men of vigorous individuality, outspoken opinions, and widely different tastes and sympathies, is a fine episode in the history of both. In May, Ruskin was invited to Cambridge to receive the honorary degree of Doctor of Laws, and to deliver the Reed Lecture. The Cambridge Chronicle of May the 24th, 1867 says, The body of the Senate House was quite filled with Masters of Art and Ladies, principally the latter whilst there was a large attendance of undergraduates in the galleries who gave the lecturer a most enthusiastic reception. A brief report of the lecture was printed in the newspaper, but it was not otherwise published, and the manuscript seems to have been mislaid for thirty years. I take the liberty of copying the opening sentences as a specimen of that academical oratory which Mr. Ruskin then adopted and used habitually in his earlier lectures at Oxford. The title of the discourse was The Relation of National Ethics to National Arts. In entering on the duty today entrusted to me, I should hold it little respectful to my audience if I disturbed them by expression of the diffidence which they know that I must feel in first speaking in this Senate House, diffidence which might well have prevented me from accepting such duty, but ought not to interfere with my endeavour simply to fulfil it. 
Nevertheless, lest the direction which I have been led to give to my discourse, and the narrow limits within which I am compelled to confine the treatment of its subject, may seem in any wise inconsistent with the purpose of the founder of the lecture, or with the expectations of those by whose authority I am appointed to deliver it, let me at once say that I obey their command, not thinking myself able to teach any dogma in the philosophy of the arts, which could be of any new interest to the members of the university but only that I might obtain the sanction of their audience for the enforcement upon other minds of the truth, which, after thirty years spent in the study of art, not dishonestly, however feebly, is manifest to me as the clearest of all that I have learned, and urged upon me as the most vital of all I have to declare. He then distinguished between true and false art, the true depending upon sincerity, whether in literature, music, or the formative arts, he reinforced his old doctrine of the dignity of true imagination as an attribute of healthy and earnest minds, and energetically attacked the commercial art world of the day, and the notion that drawing schools were to be supported for the sake of the gain they would bring to our manufacturers. In this lecture we see the germ of the ideas, as well as the beginning of the style, of the Oxford inaugural course and the Eagle's Nest something quite different in type from the style and teaching of the addresses to working men or to mixed popular audiences at edinburgh or manchester or even at the royal institution at this latter place on june the fourth sir henry holland in the chair he lectured on present state of modern art with reference to advisable arrangement of the national gallery repeating much of what he had said in time and tide about the taste for the horrible and absence of true feeling for pure and dignified art in the theatrical shows of the day and in the admiration for gustave dore then a new fashion mr ruskin could never endure that the man who had illustrated balzac's conte drolatique could be chosen by the religious public of england as the exponent of their sacred ideals in july after a short visit to huntley burn near abbotsford he went to keswick for a few weeks from whence he wrote the rhymed letters to his cousin at home quoted with the date wrongly given as eighteen fifty seven in preterita to illustrate his heraldic character of little pigs and to shock exoteric admirers like for example rossetti and carlyle ruskin was fond of playful nicknames and grotesque terms of endearment he never stood upon his dignity with intimates and was ready to allow the liberties he took much to the surprise of strangers he reached Keswick by July 4th and spent his time chiefly in walks upon the hills, staying at the Derwent Water Hotel. He wrote, Keswick, 19th of July, 67, afternoon, half-past three. My dearest mother, as this is the last post before Sunday, I send one more line to say I've had a delightful forenoon's walk since half-past ten by St. John's Vale and had pleasant thoughts and found one of the most varied beautiful torrent beds I ever saw in my life and I feel that I gain strength, slowly but certainly, every day. The great good of the place is that I can be content without going on great excursions which fatigue and do me harm, or else worry me with problems. I am content here with the roadside hedges and streams, and this contentment is the great thing for health, and there is hardly anything to annoy me of absurd or calamitous human doing, but still this ancient cottage life, very rude and miserable enough in its torpor, but clean and calm, not a vile cholera, a plague of bestirred pollution like back streets in London. There is also much more real and deep beauty than I expected to find in some of the minor pieces of scenery and in the cloud effects. 
July 16th. I have the secret of extracting sadness from all things, instead of joy, which is no enviable talisman. Forgive me if I ever write in a way that may pain you. It is best that you should know. When I write cheerfully, it is no pretended cheerfulness. So when I am sad, I think it right to confess it. 30th of July. Downs arrived yesterday quite comfortably and in fine weather. It is not bad this morning, and I hope to take him for a walk up Saddleback, which, after all, is the finest, to my mind, of all the Cumberland Hills, though that is not saying much, for they are much lower in effect, in proportion to their real height, than I had expected. The beauty of the country is in its quiet roadside bits, the rusticity of cottage life and shepherd labour. Its mountains are sorrowfully melted away from my old dreams of them. Next day he went straight up the steep front of Saddleback by the central ridge to the summit. It is the finest thing I have yet seen, there being several bits of real crag-work and a fine view at the top over the great plains of Penrith on one side and the Cumberland Hills as a chain on the other. Fine fresh wind blowing and plenty of crows. Do you remember poor Papa's favourite story about the Quaker whom the crows ate on Saddleback? There were some of the biggest and hoarsest voiced ones about the cliff that I ever had sympathetic croaks from, and one on top or near it so big that Downs and Crawley, having Austrian tendencies in politics, took it for a black eagle. Downs went up capitally, though I couldn't get him down again, because he would stop to gather ferns. However, we did it all and came down to Threlkeld, of the bridle of Tremaine. The king his way pursued by lonely Threlkeld's waste and wood in good time for me to dress, and for a wonder, go out to dinner with Ackland's friends, the butlers. As an episode in this visit to Keswick, ten days were given to the neighbourhood of Ambleside to show Downs Windermere, Waterhead Windermere. 10th of August, 1867, evening. I was at Coniston today. Our old Waterhead Inn, where I was so happy playing in the boats, exists no more. Its place is grown over with smooth park grass, the very sight of it forgotten. and. A quarter of a mile down the lake, a vast hotel built in the railroad station style, making up, I suppose, its fifty or eighty beds, with coffee-room, smoking-room, and every pestilent and devilish Yankeeism that money can buy or speculation plan. The depression, whatever its cause, does not affect my strength. I walked up a long hill on the road to Coniston today, gathering wild raspberries, then from this new inn, two miles to the foot of Coniston Old Man, up it, down again, necessarily, and back to dinner, without so much as warning myself, not that there was much danger of doing that at the top, for a keen west wind was blowing drifts of cloud by at a great pace, and one was glad of the shelter of the pile of stones, the largest and oldest I ever saw on a mountain top. I suppose the whole mountain is named from it. It is the shape of a beehive, strongly built, about fifteen feet high, so that I made Downs follow me up it before I would allow that he had been at the top of the old man, and covered with lichen and short moss. Lancaster Sands and the Irish Sea were very beautiful, and so also the two lakes of Coniston and Windermere, lying in the vastest space of sweet cultivated country I have ever looked over, a great part of the view from the ridgy being merely over black pine forest, even on the plains. Well, after dinner the evening was very beautiful, and I walked up the long hill on the road back from Coniston, and kept ahead of the carriage for two miles. I was sadly vexed when I had to get in, and now I don't feel as if I had been walking at all, and shall probably lie awake for an hour or two, and feeling as if I had not had exercise enough to send me to sleep. Langdale, 
13th of August. Evening. It is perfectly calm tonight, not painfully hot, and the full moon shining over the mountains, opposite my window, which are the scene of Wordsworth excursion. It was terribly hot in the earlier day, and I did not leave the house till five o'clock. Then I went out, and in the heart of Langdale Pikes found the loveliest rock scenery, chased with silver waterfalls, that I ever set foot or heart upon. The Swiss torrent beds are always more or less savage, and ruinous with a terrible sense of overpowering strength and danger, lulled. But here the sweet heather and ferns and star-mosses nestled in close to the dashing of the narrow streams, while every cranny of crag held its own little placid lake of amber, trembling with falling drops, but quietly trembling, not troubled into ridgy wave or foam. The rocks themselves, ideal rock, as hard as iron, no, not quite that, but so hard that after breaking some of it, breaking solid white quartz seemed like smashing brittle loaf sugar, in comparison, and cloven into the most noble masses, not grotesque, but majestic and full of harmony with the larger mountain mass of which they formed a part. Fancy what a place, for a hot afternoon after five, with no wind and absolute solitude, no creature except a lamb or two to mix any ruder sound or voice with the plash of the innumerable streamlets. It was during this tour that he looked at a site on the hill above Bonus on Windermere, where Mr. T. Richmond, the owner, proposed building him a house. He liked the view, but found it too near the railway station. After spending September with his mother at Norwood under the care of Dr. Powell, he was able to return home, prepare time and tide for publication, and write the preface on December the 14th. On the 19th the book was out, and immediately bought up. A month later, the second edition was issued. End of Book 3, Chapter 7 Recording by Graham Arrowsmith